As we continue our worship service, let's uh, turn with our attentions to the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, as we continue our study through this book. And just as we sung, we, we do not do this as an intellectual exercise, but we do this because we, we long to hear what God has to say, that he is speaking to us from his, this word. It is not so much even I that is speaking, but it's God speaking to us, uh, each and every one of us, speaking that which we need to hear, that which we by the grace of God, uh, may not be doers of this word. This morning, you'll notice that we are looking at faith without works is dead, part one. Verses 14 through 26 is meant to be one passage. It's one idea, one, one whole main theme. And, but we decided to break it into two just because of the richness that is found here. In fact, 14 to 26 is the main theme, the main key passage within the book of James. So we're going to break it into two this, this week and next week, 14 to 20 this week, 21 through 26 next week. We listen and hear then what God says to us through the book of James. James chapter 2, 14 through 26. Hear then the word of God. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that we read this morning. And Lord, we thank you for giving us an understanding from your scripture about the nature of salvation, about our faith that saves, a faith that is a salvation not by works, salvation that's by grace through faith so that no one may boast. But Lord, as we come to James this morning and we read how the, of the connection between faith and works, Lord, we ask for you to give us understanding. Help us to be able to understand how James fits in with our, our present understanding of the gospel of salvation by faith alone. Lord, help us to understand this not only in our minds, but Father, may you cause us to reflect our understanding through the actions that we live and display. Lord, may we ask your spirit to be our teacher now and help us to be a people who 
are not just hearers but doers. Help us to be people who not only profess faith, but that we would manifest that faith in good works. And Lord, we pray that you would cause all of us to respond to your words, and to, especially as we are encouraged by the faith that you give us, that we would praise you and give you thanks. And that we would not just praise you and give you thanks, but then share this great news with others. This, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther is widely known as the father of the Reformation. And he himself was probably best known for the doctrine of sola fide, that is, salvation by faith alone, right? Salvation that's by faith and not by any works, not by any indulgences that we could buy. Yet it's very interesting and it's very fitting that in Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans, Romans, you know, is about the gospel of God, about how we are justified by faith and not by works, Martin Luther, in this preface, writes this beautiful yet very piercing description of the nature of true saving faith. I want to read it for you. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Martin Luther, piercing as always. Martin Luther understood the nature of genuine saving faith. He knew that faith could never be devoid of good works, even as he advocated and fought fiercely with his life, even, of salvation by faith that is apart from works. Martin Luther's words for us even this morning appropriately describe our passage this morning in the book of James. This passage that we have just read is a passage that describes the heart of James. It presents his main theme of faith that works. Of the 16 times that faith is due, the word faith is used in James, 11 of them are found in this passage. And of the 15 times that the word works is used in James, 12 are also in this passage. Over half of these verses that we've just read this morning use faith and works together in the same verse. Thus, this passage teaches us of this connection between faith and works for the Christian All that has been written in this book to this point have driven us to this point. He's written, James has written to us of how faith works in the midst of trials. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 18. He's written to us of how faith works in one's response to God's word in verses 19 through 27 of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, he's described how faith works in how we show no favoritism in the body of Christ because we ought to have a love for one another. James has clearly taught, clearly taught that faith in Jesus Christ will produce good works. Now, in our passage today, James develops his point that faith which doesn't produce good works is not genuine faith at all, but rather it's a dead and useless faith. 
So as we study this text this morning, I pray that it will challenge each of us, especially all of us here who are professing believers in Christ. We all profess faith. We all believe, say believe in Jesus Christ, but it causes us to examine our lives to see if our faith is a living faith or a dead faith. And if it's a living faith, then we will praise God, right? That's, we should praise God because our faith is alive. It's not just something we made up. It's not just something that's in our heads, but it actually makes a difference. It's, it's transformed us. But if, our, if we discover it, and it's possible, and this is, the, this is the, uh, the piercing aspect of our passage this morning, that it's possible that one or two or some of you may come to realize today that your faith is a dead faith, that your faith is absent of any good works whatsoever. And then, but do not despair, for there is always hope. And the hope is that today you may turn in faith to Jesus Christ and then praise God with us for that living and true faith that he gives. So as we look at this passage, then we look at this importance of faith that works, or really the converse of it. If you don't have faith, if you don't have works, then you really don't have faith. And as an outline for us this morning, James will walk us through two arguments, two arguments that demonstrate for us a faith that faith without works is in actuality a dead faith. It's a useless faith. It's good for nothing. So let's take a look at argument number one. In verse 14 through 17, James argues that a profession of faith without compassion is dead faith. His argument begins in verse 14, with a pair of rhetorical questions. Verse 14, we read this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? This is sort of the introductory idea, the key to this passage, and everything that follows from this passage will elaborate on this, this, what is brought out here, that a person says he has faith, but he has no works. Really, what use is it? Can that faith save him? Notice that James is addressing those who are, he calls my brethren. So he's talking to those who are believers. He's writing to the, the, those who believe in Jesus Christ that are scattered throughout a Jewish, particularly Jewish background believers, scattered outside of Israel. James' first question, you notice, is what use is it? What use is it? Other translations that you, we have among us might be, what good is it? What benefit is it? James, as we've learned, is an intensely practical book. That's why many of us that are practical people like James, because it's so practical. And James's question is very practical, isn't it? He says, what use is it? You say that you have faith, and Christians are known for their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what use is it? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, what use is it that for you? Many of us, before we came to know Jesus Christ, when someone would share the gospel, we'd say, oh, I don't need that. What use is that for me? I don't need that. But the, a lot of times, we, but we eventually, God brings us to the realization why we might need faith in Christ. Wherever, whatever circumstance we live, that it can make a difference in lives, that it transforms us, it changes it gives us grace and wisdom and strength for this life, but it more importantly gives us a hope and assurance for the next life as well. But James asks, what use is it? He'll even ask this question a second time at the end of verse 16. What use is that? What use is the same, same word is used? What benefit is this? The situation that's being considered of whether it's useful or not is this phrase, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Notice James doesn't say here, if someone has faith, as if taking that for granted, but he says, if someone says he has faith, right? 
Someone says he has faith. Someone claims to have faith. Someone professes to have faith. James is writing about a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ. I think for the majority of his, we are all people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We're all someone who says that we have faith in Jesus Christ. But notice particularly that James says, not just that he's someone who says he has faith, but this one may, may or may not actually have genuine faith. Notice how he modifies someone who professes or says he has faith, but he has no works. He has no works. Someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but he has no works. This term works is a key, key word here. It refers to any righteous act that is done in obedience to God out of a relationship with Christ. James here is probably oftentimes remembering the words of his brother Jesus, the words of his Lord. Matthew 5, 16 probably came to mind, where Jesus once said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. That's the same word, good deeds, good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus taught very clearly that we who are going to be followers of Christ ought to be light. Jesus is light. If we follow the light, we ought to reflect light. And we ought to therefore do good works. And notice these good works aren't just necessarily in our own attitudes internally, but there are things that people ought to be able to see. They're visible things. Things that say, oh, tangentially, people say, look, that person did this. Look, that person is in the midst of a trial, and, and they are responding with joy. Look, that person is seeking and fighting for social justice, demanding that people be treated equally and fairly. Look, that person is looking out for someone who's poor and giving, giving uh, the, what they need to that person. All these different ways that are vis- we visibly obey God in these works in, in, out of a relationship with Christ are, that, are these good works. Paul writes about good works, too, in Titus 2, 14. Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. So Christ Jesus came to save us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, Jesus redeemed us so that we would be a people who are zealous, eager, desiring to do good deeds. We should have a natural desire to do good deeds. And that's the same word that's translated good works. Do we desire to do good deeds? Do we desire to obey God's commands as an outflow of our relationship with Christ. We are to be zealous for good works so that the world may see these good works and that ultimately they may glorify our God in heaven. But James here is writing about a not uncommon situation in every local church, a situation that may be true even of this church. There are always some individuals who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but yet their lives are absent of any good works, of any works. It's not that they don't do one good work or another good work, but their whole life, as a pattern of their life, do not demonstrate the good works that reflect Jesus Christ in us. And so James asks, if you have such a faith, if you say that you have such a faith, and you, but you have no good works, he asks, what use is that? Rhetorically so. And the expecting answer, of course, is, No, it's not worth anything. It's of no use. And so James asks a second rhetorical question that sort of further defines really what is at the issue of this usefulness of faith. He asks a second question. Can that faith save him? Ultimately, what is going to be good and useful about our faith? It's got to be that it's got to actually save. 
We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Why? So that we might be saved from our sins. We've been singing about how God's been merciful from us, delivering us from the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. It's got to actually do that. Can this faith that is absent of work save? The King James, the New King James, I know some of us have that translation. Very, uh, notice it leaves out, you'll notice that it leaves out the article before the word faith. In A.S. translated as that. And it's real important because it's can the particular faith, this particular faith that James has been describing, it's not really the translation that can faith save him is a poor translation. Yes, faith does save. That's the only way God saves. He saves by faith. But can this particular faith that James has been talking about, a faith that one professes to have but yet has no works alongside with it, can that kind of faith save? The rhetorical question receives a rhetorical answer of, no, it cannot save. It's of no use. And so James further elaborates on this point in verse 15 to 16 and with a hypothetical situation. James just kind of does this. He's done this early in chapter 2 already. He uses a similar hypothetical situation of a poor brother or sister. Verse 15, if a brother or sister with, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and we see here it's a brother or sister, so therefore this is a, a fellow believer. He's writing to believers. Suppose you have a fellow believer, a fellow brother or sister in Christ who is without clothing. Some translators might say naked, but this really issue is not that they're naked, uh, but this word, though it is literally the word naked, but the idea is that they do not have adequate clothing. And it's used in that sense in other places within Scripture. That one doesn't have adequate clothing. Today was a cold day. So if you saw someone walking around with basically only a T-shirt and shorts, okay, and they're not running, they have inadequate clothes. They don't have enough clothes. They don't have a thick jacket because it's cold out there. Well, it's always cold in San Francisco, but particularly cold today. So you see someone walking around without an adequate clothing. Most of you guys are, you have adequate clothing today. You're even wearing your coats inside the service because it's cold outside. If you see a brother without clothing, or if you see someone, a brother or sister, without, or in need of daily food, that is they lack food for today. Most of us have enough, plenty of food for today. I open my refrigerator, and I think I have plenty of food for this whole week. I have my daily food. And there are some who may not have enough food for the week, and there are some who have, don't even have enough food for today. It reminds me of my seminary days. So if you find a brother or sister who is in need of either clothing or in need of food, this poor brother or sister, and that's the situation. And then James goes on, and then one of you, that is one of you Christians, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? A fellow Christian here is saying something. It's not that he's not, he's saying something that's wrong. He's actually saying something that's correct here, right? He says, go in peace. That word go in peace is actually a, a phrase that was a appropriate, a common phrase in Jewish custom, Jewish expression of, of God bless you, farewell, is mentioned, used by Jesus several times in the gospels. So it's not a wrong thing to say, go in peace. There's maybe, the, may shalom follow you, God shalom. Furthermore, the words, the verbs here, to be warmed and be filled, a passive tense, is a sort of an expression of the, 
of prayer. It's a prayerful expression that may God warm you, may God fill you, is the idea. And so this is having the statement of these things is not necessarily wrong. Actually, the right thing to say, and we do that, don't we? Sometimes people share with us needs, and we'll say, well, oh, man, God bless you in that. I'm going to pray for you. There's nothing wrong in saying that. We ought to say that. We ought to offer to pray for one another when we have needs. But the point here for James, it says that not only does the person say the right thing, but you don't do the right thing. It says, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. In effect, this Christian here has not shown the compassion or love for his fellow Christian that he, he ought to do. He's not shown, obeyed the royal law that James just talked about in uh, the pre- verses of previous. He doesn't give them any clothing. He doesn't give them any food. He doesn't give them what's, what they need. He's failed to show compassion, failed to show mercy, failed to show love. And we know the Bible teaches us to love one another. So James summarizes this scenario with this question from the beginning. What use is that? What good is it? What benefit is this if you are such a Christian that you can say the right things, but you don't do the right things? And again, the answer is nothing. It's of no use. Not only is it of saying the right thing by not doing the right thing is of no use or benefit for the poor person who just walks away still hungry and still without clothes, but particularly it's of no use for the professing Christian, for one of you who says this. For you have a compassionless faith. A compassionless faith is ultimately just a faith that is without works. And such faith cannot save, does not save. Jesus would make this point very clear in, his, uh, in Matthew 25, verse 41 to 46. In this prophecy of the future judgment that will come, uh, that's called the sheep and goat judgment, Jesus prophesies judgment for those who basically do not show mercy. In verses 42 to 43, you can't say, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat, uh, etc., and it goes on. But in verse 44, the condemned will protest against Jesus, and they'll say, well, when did we see you, Jesus? We, didn't, we never saw you. How do we have an opportunity to feed you, to give you water, to, to, to visit with you, or to care for you? How do we, do, how do we have an opportunity since we didn't even see you? But James, as you notice in verse 45, will answer them. And he will say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to, the one, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. See, God is... Jesus expresses his desire for his people to love and care for one another, for their fellow believers. And if we don't, as a pattern of our lives, we will face a similar judgment as those who we find here in, in the future judgment of sheep and goats. It's good to pray. It's right to pray for those in need. But if we are able, if we have two cloaks, if we have the extra food, we are to share with those who are without. It's God's desire that we meet the needs of our fellow believers in Christ. For as those who have received mercy, how can we not show mercy, right? 
How can we who have received so much compassion and loving kindness from God, as Psalm 103 uh, just made me read it again as reflecting upon God's loving kindness towards God's compassion towards us, how he's removed our sin from us, all these judgment that we deserved, he's shown instead of us to us time and time again, compassion, mercy, and love. How can we who have received mercy then not show mercy? And when it comes to mercy, some mistakenly think that showing mercy or compassion means to primarily sharing the gospel with those in need. And that's important. In fact, it is a a priority to share the gospel. But James tells us here in our passage today that showing mercy through meeting physical needs is also important. We don't just go out there to tell the hungry or sick to repent and believe in Jesus, but then not feed them or not care for them. We feed the hungry. We care and visit the sick. And we tell them about Jesus Christ. We show mercy because of and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because we received God's mercy that we tell others of Jesus and we show mercy to them. It's for the sake of the presentation of the gospel, the visible demonstration of the gospel, that we show physical mercy to other people. We need both hand in hand. We need the preaching of the gospel, but we also need the showing of mercy too, together. If we do not show mercy in our lives, and James is expressing here that our profession of faith in Christ is of no use which leads to James's biblical conclusion here in verse 17. He says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. See, faith without works, that is a profession, without compassion or mercy or love, is no true faith at all. It is a dead faith, as evidenced by the fact that it is by itself. That is just faith. Faith alone that does not result or produce any works. James will repeat this key idea several, two other times in this letter, in this passage, in verse 20, verse 26, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is dead. Jesus will emphasize this truth, emphasizes this truth in his own words in Matthew 7, 16 through 18, where Jesus writes of false, writing of false prophets says, you will know them by their fruits. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good, bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. See, if your life does not produce good fruit or good works, and yet you profess faith in Jesus Christ, then it reveals that you are not a good tree. You are, your faith is not a genuine faith. It is a dead faith. That's the point. If you see no fruits in your life, then it is an evidence that it is shows you or points to you that your faith is not true, not real. It's a faith that doesn't save. So what should you do if you have a profession of faith that is lacking compassion, that does not have compassion? And I'm not saying that it's like, oh, I wish I could be more compassionate. Okay, we all could be more compassionate. We all could be more merciful. We all could be more loving. But if we look at our lives and we see that there is zero compassion, zero mercy, zero love for others, what should we do? 
Should we from this moment on say, well, boy, I'm suddenly, I'm going to start doing good works of mercy and compassion. I'm going to go and go to the, you know, go down to the San Francisco Gospel Mission. I'm going to start serving there. I'm going to go find the homeless on our street here. I'm going to start passing out food to them. No, that's not what you should do. Because the problem is you have a dead faith. And no matter how many good works you add to a dead faith, it's not going to make your faith alive. Because salvation is not by works. Salvation is by grace through faith. What you'd rather we ought to do if, when you, if you come to this place in your life and you realize, boy, my faith has not, is not real. It's not true. It's not, it's not genuine. Then the opportunity, praise God, is that you're here and you're hearing it and that you today can repent from your sin and believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ and do it sincerely from the heart and trust that God will then produce those good works, the fruit that he, he created, saved you to do. For a genuine repentance and trust, according to James, a genuine faith is going to produce good fruits, good works. It will lead to those works of compassion. You don't have to generate it of your own strength. Just as salvation is, or faith is by a gift of God, so is the works. It's God working them in, through, in and through us. It's Christ making, manifesting himself in our lives. As Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 16, let your light then shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our faith is going, must manifest in good, will manifest in good works. And a faith that is absent of good works is a dead faith. So a profession of faith without compassion is a dead faith, is James' argument. In verse 18, 20, 18 to 20, James takes us down on a second line of argument, a very similar, that faith without works is dead. But it is this, that a confession of a creed without submission is dead faith. James here is responding to the one who says that he has faith, but yet has no works in their life. He's responding to this, that someone that in verse 14. And so he first begins with a logical response in verse 18 to that individual. Verse 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 18 uh, is one of the more difficult verses to interpret in James. And um, I'm going to take some time just to kind of walk you through the difficulty of interpreting this because it is, such, it is a difficult thing, and I want you to understand it so that we can understand the flow of James's argument here. Uh, there are several questions that must be answered. Just as we make observations of the text, we always ask who, what, where, when, and why, and how, and all those kinds of things. But when we come to this place, we ask ourselves, who is this someone? Who is the one that's speaking here? That's the first question that comes, we arrive at several possible, and possible answers. There are generally two potential answers. Is it an adversary, someone who opposes James? Perhaps the very someone from verse 14. Is it the one who says, I've got faith, but yet their life has no works? Is it that guy who's, who's responding here? Or is it an ally that's speaking here? Is it someone who agrees with James? Perhaps it's James himself speaking uh, in third person here. So if someone will say, the second 
uh, interpretive question that we ask ourselves, or that we have to that have many different answers, is how much of verse 18 is spoken by this, by this someone? So we first of all, we've got to figure out who is speaking here. Who's the someone that's speaking this? And then we ask ourselves, what is that someone saying? If you have the ESV or NIV, you might think that this person, this someone, is saying basically the first half of this verse. The phrase, you have faith and I have works, because your quotation marks are between those words. If you have the New American Standard Version, then you will say, well, it must be the whole verse, because my quotation marks includes you have faith and I have works and the latter half of the verse, right? So, whoa, you know, that's, uh, that's an interpretive issue. You see, what, we don't, what you may not realize is that in the original Greek, there are no such things as quotation marks. And when the English translators of the Bible translate the Bible, they have to do a bit of interpretation for us. They have to put in quotation marks to help us understand, well, yeah, this, this someone is saying this, or someone is saying this. But as an interpreter, we don't just take necessarily for granted what this means. We ask ourselves, what, is, what makes sense in light of the context? And so you can imagine with all the potential answers, there's variations of even these answers. Uh, it becomes a difficult interpretation. Let me tell you what is the most common interpretation among evangelicals today. The most common interpretation is this, that just like the ESG and the NIV interpret. Uh, translate for us, that it is an adversary speaking. It is someone who opposes James. Someone, probably the guy in verse 14 who says, you have faith, or who is basically, I have a faith, but I have faith in Jesus, but that person has no works. So he's simply saying, you have faith and I have works, to, to uh, kind of stating that in general. And then the latter half of verse 18 is really James's reply to that individual. This is the most common interpretation. Now, the difficulty with this view, of course, or I don't know if it's a course, is that if we understand this person who says, who basically has faith but has no works, it's kind of weird that they would say, you have faith and I have works. See, they're the one that says they have faith. Not James, you have faith and I have works. They don't have works. So why would they say, and I have works? You would expect the person, the adversary, to say the, quite the opposite. I have faith and you have works. That's what we should expect to read here if this is uh, that person, the adversary, or the person of verse 14. And so to resolve this, many commentators have given, taken the pronouns you and I, and they've given a generalized meaning to them. Basically, uh, one person says that he has faith. Then another person says that he has works. So sort of simple, basically convey that people are trying to separate faith from works. And while this is a possible translation, it is a extremely rare usage of these words. And I believe that a, a, just a better way to interpret this passage um, and a more like, and I think more likely interpretation is to see that, to take the NIS translation, uh, is that this is an ally of James, or James himself, and I think it's James himself, that is speaking here. And, and, and I think the NIS says, someone may well say, well, I think it's just, it's a future tense, so someone, James is saying, someone will say, someone will say this to the person who is, you know, who has no faith. So James is speaking this as a response to the one in verse 14 who says he has faith but has no works. Of course, I told you that no interpretation has this difficulty. The difficulty with this, with this interpretation is the word but that begins verse 18. And many people stumble over this, but because they say, look at verse 17. Verse 17 is this idea that faith without works is dead. Then James says, but, how, why would he then say, but? 
and then you have faith and I have works, and all that he says. It doesn't seem to contrast very well with verse 17. My answer to that is that the fact is James is not contrasting this what he says here, verse 18, with verse 17. He's contrasting what he says here with verse 14. To the one who says he has faith but has no works, James then says, someone will say to that person, James himself will say to that person, he will give this answer to them because if you say you have faith and you have, but you have no works, that does not make sense. And so James gives a logical response here to that person. And we interpret all this then in light of that. James is saying to them, to this person, this. Anyone here who, anyone who says they have faith but have no works, he says, well, you have, well, I have, James says to the person, you have faith, or you say that you have faith, and I have works, right? So he says, but then he asks him to show his faith by his works. Shells challenges the man to show us your faith by your works, and he can't. It's, no, it's not possible to show your faith without your works. And James instead says, but I will by my works, since I have them, will show you, be able to show you my faith. What we realize here is that faith is an act of one's heart, mind, and soul, right? We know that we're saved by faith. It's clear. We just read it, Ephesians chapter 2 today. We're saved by grace through faith and not of works, not a result of works. Faith, though, is an internal thing. It's in our heart, in our soul, and mind, and we're saved by it. But no one can see faith in us. No one can see faith in you as per se by itself. So how can you prove it apart from any works? See, the point is that you can only show your faith by your works. If you don't have any works in your life, it will never be a demonstration that you have faith. It's like a person who says that they love their wives but never shows any act that loves their wife. Well, then I would dare to say that you don't love your wife. Logically speaking, James here reveals that faith that is absent of works is a dead faith. It's insufficient to say because if you don't have works, you cannot demonstrate that you have faith. It is absent. You could say all you want, oh, yeah, I, but I do believe. Yes, yes, I do believe. And you could give us the, all the correct explanation of the gospel. But if I see no good, no good works out of your life, any good works out of your life, and we're not looking for uh, perfect good works, but we're just saying, is there a manifest, general manifestation of your life of good works? If you don't see that, then you have a dead faith, James says. But James doesn't just give a logical response to the one who says he has faith but has no works. He gives a theological response as well. In verse 19, he says to that person, you believe that God is one. You have faith. Well, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. This verse is kind of also a bit challenging to interpret because the, the interpretation requires a little bit of, uh, a little bit of um, putting kind of uh, in, of uh, putting things together and kind of you know, what, what this passage insinuates or intimates. But the phrase, you believe that God is one, would have been a very clear phrase for all of James's Jewish audience, right? If you're a Jewish person, you, when you hear that God is one, for them, it would bring to mind of the, something that comes out of the Old Testament just like that. 
It's all, it's just like when I say, for God so loved the world, you all think of what? John 3.16. And so when an Israelite, or any Jewish people here, for God is one, it brings you to you, your mind, Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema, right? You would say, oh, that's the great Shema. The great, hear, O Israel, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's it was, in a sense, a very much Israel's creed. It was their doctrinal statement. It was that phrase which would kind of help Israel to summarize who they were and what they believed as the people of God. It's just like for some of us, many of us grew up in churches that had creeds. One church that I attended as a younger believer oftentimes would repeat the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. It was our way as a church to express our common convictions about what we believe as Christians. And so we can all repeat these creeds. In fact, the Israelites, a faithful Israelite, would have memorized this creed, the Great Shema, and would have often repeated it twice a day. James's point here, though, is that one can confess to a biblical and orthodox creed and doctrine it can say that you believe that God is one and yet not be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. Orthodox and biblical creeds and doctrines are essential to being saved. You must have them. You must know the correct doctrine, the doctrines of the gospel in order to be saved. You must understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ or basically Jesus Christ died in, for my sins. You must understand that, what that means. That you can't be saved without it. So there is this importance of an orthodox Christian creed and doctrine, but it's possible to have that mental, intellectual sense of these doctrines and yet not be saved. James says, of course, you do well to believe this, in fact. But he also then adds, but did you know, if you can kind of include that here, but did you know that the demons also believe this very same creed? They also believe that God is one. They, in fact, the demons, the fallen angels, understand biblical doctrine. They would acknowledge that these things are true. They also acknowledge that Jesus, they know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. They know that all mankind is sinners. They themselves know that they are sinners. But it says here the demons also believe that God is one, and yet they, they shudder. What does this word shudder mean? It means, uh, well, it means to tremble with fear to tremble and shake with fear. Now, we think, oh, that's a good thing. Then maybe we think, oh, that should be good, right? The demons, they, they believe it, and then they shudder with fear. But you remember about demons is that they don't even shudder with fear. They don't do anything about it. Why are they shuddering with fear? Because God is one, and therefore he will judge sin, right? God judges sin. God's a God of justice, and he will judge sin. But the demons don't repent. They don't then return and cry out to God, oh, Lord, we are sorry for our sins. We submit to you in obedience. We turn away from our, of our judgment. Instead, they just continue in trembling and fear. They do not repent and submit. And so the implication of this is that true faith understands who God is and rightly responds to him, repenting and submitting to him. That is, if we have true faith, we have the right doctrine, biblical, and yet, and it's a true doctrine, true faith, then we will not just tremble in fear. Oh, God's going to judge me for my sin. It's wonderful if you believe that God's going to judge you. You need to understand that. 
but it should drive us then to realize that, oh, yes, but yet at the same time, Christ died in place of my sins. So if I cast myself upon him and believe in him, I will be saved. Submit myself before, humble myself before him. Submitting to him in obedience. In fact, uh, the great, uh, significantly, the, the great Shema brings this point out that a creed, the, the right orthodox or the biblical creed will ought to result in right actions. Creed of the, of the great Shema is followed by this call to submission. Deuteronomy 6, 5, which we all know, the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see, if you believe that God is one and the, God is your, and the Lord is your God, well, then you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you ought to love him with all your heart and mind. You ought to obey him with your life. You ought to submit to his instructions for us. You ought to show compassion and love towards others and not just continue to tremble in fear of God, but to respond in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So James then concludes with another biblical conclusion in verse 20, the same conclusion as he did in verse 17. But are you willing to recognize? Actually, he makes it now an appeal, a question. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James is appealing by calling this person a, a name. <laughs> he calls him a foolish fellow. But James calls him, uh, by the, in the, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls him that which is exactly what he is. A person who says that they have faith but have no works is foolish. You are foolish to think that if you simply profess faith in Christ, if you confess or believe in your mind that you have the right biblical doctrine, but in your life you have no demonstration, no manifestation of any thing of Christ in your life, you have no good works, you have no desire to do good deeds, you have no desire to love your, your brothers and sisters whom sometimes you know they rub you the wrong way, you have no desire to forgive, you have no desire to show mercy to those who need mercy or are hurting in the church, you have no desire to do anything that would reflect Christ, no desire to share the gospel, then something is wrong with your faith. In fact, you're foolish to think that the faith will save you. Oh, foolish fellow, won't you recognize this truth, James says, that your faith is useless. You can have the right doctrine. You can be biblically orthodox. You can have the correct creed. But without doing works, without the manifestation of works in your life, it is useless. Jesus uses this word useless in in Matthew 20, verse 3, the parable of the vineyard workers described those workers that basically were just like sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They were doing nothing. They were not working. That's the word. It means not working. Your faith is not working. That's what James says. It's a not working faith. Without submission to the Lord, James says, you're no different than the demons. You may believe all you want, everything biblical that you would like. But if you do not do and obey my words, if you're not manifesting good works, and we know it's, it's not about perfection, but it's about a direction, a direction towards holiness, directions towards Christ-likeness, we would have a problem with our faith. That faith is useless, James says. It doesn't work. It's a dead faith, and it's a faith that doesn't save. 
sobering words for us because we are all people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will take time this, this week to, and even this day to examine your own heart in light of what James challenges us in. That we would examine to see if our faith is a living faith or it's a dead faith. This afternoon, we are going to have our church family meeting. And one of the things that we usually have during our church family meetings is the welcome of new members. And when we welcome new members into the church body, we ask them to share of their personal salvation testimony. And many of you have had the opportunity to share, share your salvation testimony with us, and we praise God for that. One of the aspects of us, and maybe it's me, but I think a lot of us do this, is particularly as a Bible church, when we listen to people's salvation testimony, what do we listen for? I think many of us listen to, make sure we listen for correct doctrine, first of all. We, learn, we, listen to, we want to listen for those key biblical doctrines of salvation that is expressed in their testimony. Uh, we want to see, does, we want to listen for, does the person say, I became convicted of my sin, or I realized I was a sinner? Do they have any expression, well, then I repented of my sin, and I turned in faith to Jesus Christ. We listen for, do they recognize that Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave? Do we hear them say, I have faith in Christ's person and work? You see, all these things are, are biblical and correct aspects and doc, of the doctrines of the gospel. And, we, and, and you do well to believe them. And, and it's good that we're looking out because we're, we're not looking to say, oh, that person's not really saved. But we want to make sure that they're saved. But to stop right there is inadequate. We also should be listening for a faith that goes beyond correct biblical doctrine. We should be looking for a faith that manifests in biblical works, in righteous works. Do we hear of them testifying of a changed life? Do we hear of them reflecting of how their greater desire for obedience, a longing for God's word? Do we see in them a reflection of, of transformation and changes that is happening because, not because of their own efforts, but because they now have Christ in them. They have a newness of life. And so by nature, by the very nature of who we are now in Christ, we're going to be changing in our minds, but then in our deeds. And we'll hear of a greater compassion, greater mercy, greater love, greater desire to obey, to submit to the Lord, And while you and I sit there and listening for a faith that works in the life of our new members, I pray that we also would be looking at ourselves to see if we have a faith. If we were called to stand up there and give our testimony of Jesus Christ and people are listening to us and they're listening for our biblical doctrine, yes, but, and say listen for the manifestation of Christ in us and the good works, will they see it? Can others who look at your life see the light of Christ in you? Do others see the good works of your, in your life that show the mercy and compassion of Christ? Do others see the good deeds that show your submission to the Lord Jesus? And do others then see your good works and glorify God, a Father in heaven? Convicting questions for all of us to ask.
And if we can, and I trust that we can answer in the affirmative, then we should bless the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we cannot answer in the affirmative any of these questions, then we need to take a good look at our faith. Go before the Lord. Cast yourself upon the Lord. Seek counsel even. Ask others about your, the, whether they see work, good works in your life. Remember, we're not saved by good works, but those good works will be a manifestation, will be a, a picture, will show that we have, that you have genuine faith in Christ because the alternative is no use. It's of no benefit. A faith without works is dead, and it doesn't save. That's what none of us want. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you for these truths, and I pray, Lord, that we would take a good look at ourselves this morning, cause us to not just be talking and talking and talking about faith and works, as Martin Luther said, but Lord, help us to examine and then do by the, your grace continue to walk in obedience to allow the light of Christ to shine in us so that others may see that light those good works and glorify you who saved us Father if there's any here who does not have is maybe coming to that place where they realize that they don't have true and living faith. Lord, we, we praise God that you're bringing them to that realization. We praise you, Lord, and pray, and pray for them that you would grant them now true faith so they would repent and believe in, for sure, this, in true sincerity and faith in Christ. And Lord, then that as they receive Christ, may they then manifest all the works that you have saved them to do. And Lord, we pray that as a church body, we would continue to make manifest Christ in us. Father, whether it's compassion or mercy or love or whether it's submission to your commands, Father, may you cause us to be obedient. For we ultimately know that it's not by our efforts, but again, it's all by your grace. It's by your spirit working in us. So Father, we ask that you would do that work in us. Produce in us these good works, we pray, for your glory for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.